Exploring the natural world, one podcast episode at a time. This is For What It's Earth. Hi all, and thank you for joining me for another episode of For What It's Earth by me, Marissa Jacobs of the Art of Ecology. And here, animal warriors, eco-enthusiasts, we all can discover and explore so many facets of the environment that we all love, as well as some creative ways to make a positive difference for the planet. And during season four, I am combining the things that I love the most, the natural world and the artistic world. So you're going to hear from a variety of artists across a variety of mediums all over the United States who are making the ecosystems around them a better place through their craft. So this week I am joined by Annie Cadden, who is a textile artist that I discovered on Instagram through her amazing use of botanical dye. So welcome, Annie. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. So my first question, because it's botanical dye, that seems, and not to me, I'm very biased in this, but from what I see with a lot of the public perception is that botanical dye is very outdated. That's what like the European settlers did or uh, thinking back to like ancient Greece with those little snails, like that's old timey stuff. Uh, we have synthetic dyes now. I am wearing all synthetic dyes today. It's easy to come by. That's what people sell. So why why do it? Can you tell us how you got into it? Well, sure. Yes. And you are right. It seems like an old craft and traditional thing to have things uh, naturally dyed. But fortunately, that is coming back to be the forefront of what we're wearing. And we could talk about that a little more. Um, but I got into natural dyeing as um, a young girl, I was joined a local guild, which I'm still a member of. And I joined because I wanted to learn to weave. And that came later. <laughs> first, okay. I, first, I learned to spin on a spinning wheel. And then I learned to natural dye. I took a class with one of the women who founded the um, guild. Her name was Nellie Burnham. And I had no idea that you could get a color from a plant. And as soon as we went through that workshop, I was hooked. And I have been working alongside Nellie, she was my mentor, for over 20 years. Wow. Um, and she was a big start, a big inspiration, and it changed everything for me. And then later on, when I learned that you can get color from mushrooms, um, following, you know, Alyssa Allen, um, Michael Pigments, and finding that world, that changed everything. But Nellie did introduce me to lichen dyeing along with uh, botanical dyeing. Um, my first class was like in 1999. Um, oh, wow. And, you know, life gets busy, I fell off and on. And in the last five to seven years, I fully went full force into natural dyeing. So I was lucky to learn from someone directly in that form. That's so cool. I can only imagine because all of my intro into the botanical dye world has been through Instagram. Primarily, you were the first person that I was um, able to follow as I was getting into it. So I can imagine having a person there that you're directly able to learn under would only expedite your learning process and really get you hooked super fast. 
Yes. And, you know, I never heard of it until like I took the class, you know, then, you know, I got very involved in, in reading about and learning about um, the Navajo dye chart, because that was the first mm-hmm. dye chart that I saw. And I have one here hanging in my studio and it's a big influence. But um, yeah, to watch that happen firsthand, I was like, this is incredible. It's brilliant. This is amazing. And um, every time it makes you look at everything when you go on a hike or you go driving down yeah. a road and you're like, oh my God, look at all that golden rod. That makes this or whatever. And <laughs> fortunately now that information is is more well known over the last 10 years or so. People are getting back into natural dyeing. So it's great. That is so cool. I know because of what I have learned when I go out for hikes, I'm always like, is this a dyer's polypore? Or <laughs> things like that. I always get so excited about, um, it's like a scavenger hunt. Uh, once you have a a thought of what you want to look for, you're like, okay, I have to check all of these places. Yeah. So with all of those plants, do you have a favorite, either, either a favorite plant that you like to work with or a favorite color? Cause I, I know those don't always correlate. I, you know, I have to say out of everything, you know, most, uh, I would think most dyers go after colors and, you know, th- having a specific item maybe to mm-hmm. knit or weave or shirt to dye. But I am a huge fan of the um, black walnut. I love it. I, oh, it's a, such a giver. Um, and I like earthy tones. I'm pro, mm-hmm. you know, I'm drawn to that. But Every part of that tree can give you an amazing dye. The bark. Really? Yes. Oh, yeah. The, you know, you think of the walnuts and, of course, yeah. you get that nice brown and you can get that brown to get deep brown. You can get it to be almost blackish with a, an iron mordant. But the leaves make a beautiful bronzy color and mm. the bark itself can give like a golden brown color. Um, and I, I love it. I love the walnut and you could echo print with it. Um, you could use the bark it, for basketry. Um, it's, it's a giver. Wow. Okay. So yeah, I, I knew of the black walnut, the, the nut itself. And that's one of my favorite colors to make. Is that nice? Oh, it looks like coffee. I love that color. Mm-hmm. I knew of that, but I didn't know of the other uses but I guess the walnut is super high even in the leaves in tannins is that what you use for the print then yes and it's good you say that because um you don't need a mordant with black walnut either and people can tell by your hands they get very black I mean (laughs) yeah people make ink from it you can make watercolor from it it's just the giver and it's beautiful it's a beautiful tree um and, and you can eat black walnuts. We forget yeah. about that. When you're a dyer or a, a natural, you're not thinking about the actual people eat walnuts. Um, but yeah, they're, they're really, really beautiful and a giver. I love, I particularly love the color of the leaves used as a dye. The echo print is gorgeous, but I like the color of the dye. And you said that's like a golden. Almost like bronze. Oh, wow. Okay, mm-hmm. I have a new I have a new list <laughs> list item for this year because I always get so excited for the black walnuts because I do the foraging at, for that culinary side. So every year oh. I make the Italian liqueur, the black walnut liqueur. Um, that, you know, I I had that for the first time this year. Oh, uh, it's 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 very ooh, good. it is a pungent pungent liqueur, but it is so good for you too. Um, 
So I'm always foraging the nuts for that. And then I do the dye with that. So now I'm just going to go whole hog on the tree and and you that, said the bark too? The bark, if you're lucky enough to have a, a, a live walnut tree branch right. go down or something, because of course we always want to harvest sustainably. We talk about right. that, but the, oh yes. I wish I had my basket with me just to show you. I have a black walnut basket that I um, took a wild basketry series with Katie Groves and um, the walnut, oh, just stunning. But yeah, the bark could be harvested and then we took pieces of the bark that might have broke off in the water we were using right. and I added yarn to it and the bark color is just stunning. Stunning. Okay. Okay. I am re-excited for summer now. So would I harvest that in the summer or fall or Harvesting bark is always best in the spring when any saps or anything are flowing because then it, pull, it pulls off easier, especially after a rainy day, um, the okay. bark could come off. But you would use the inner bark. So you would have to use a draw blade or something to take the rough bark off the outside. And then you would use the inner bark, that middle layer, not the core. And that would um, create beautiful color. Okay, so then just- Your hemlocks and your um, cherry trees. They all, okay. a lot of tree, we could talk about tree dyes for an hour. <laughs> I, oh, I love working with trees, partially because my husband is an arborist. So he's working with trees all the time. So it's a lot easier for me to harvest sustainably because he just brings home all the stuff that he pruned off oh. as compared to me having to go out and create these wounds myself. Right. Um, so it's, you know, I am always looking for storm damage. So it's still fresh, but it's not something I have to go harvest. Yeah. Um, so just kind of going off that then really quickly of harvesting sustainably, especially with, with trees. Um, I mean, even with flowers, we want to harvest sustainably or with any part of the plant. Um, but with trees, you're creating these wounds as you harvest the the bark or the cambium layer or branches twigs uh but there are there are some good ways to do that so can you just talk about for a little bit uh the importance as well as how you harvest your plant matter sustainably absolutely um so i i am a forage dyer um i don't have a dye garden and i don't or I have ordered, I do do indigo. Occasionally indigo really brightens everything up. It's a, it's a powerhouse. Um, and I have dyed for other people who would want a specific color. Um, but most people I work with now too, just want to harvest from their properties, their gardens or whatever. So each year, like I look at what's in abundance. We have a, we're very blessed with a lot of acres around us that we live on. And we have a lot of hay, um, hay scented fern here. So I will harvest a basket full, but I won't harvest it in one area. I'll walk throughout the property and take a little bit everywhere. And um, I'll die with that one year. Then I won't die with it for a couple of years. I'll die a couple of years later. But we get to like um, goldenrod is very prolific here. You know, um, mm -hmm. when you have a lot of fields, Queen Anne's lays. But if we get to a plant that... Um, the bees are very attracted to if you want to harvest flowers, you don't, you know, 
take maybe 10% of the area and don't take it all in one area mm -hmm. and make sure you leave plenty behind. And we could talk about all different plants and how to harvest each one of those sustainably. But as a forage dyer, I don't plan this year well, I can't always say I could die with goldenrod because there's no, <laughs> no waste. Right, it's very, it's everywhere. I recently died with curly dock, um, which okay. grows along the road and um, it makes a beautiful rust color, gorgeous. And, you know, you wait till it's pretty much dry to get that color. So okay. dying seasonally, you learn the best time to harvest plants. I like think almost like food fresh is best you get your right. best color fresh but we can freeze some of these plants too to use later in winter or dry them out um but it's really important that people know like say they see a whole bunch of uh, biden or a a wild coreopsis let's say if okay. you're familiar that's a dye power but it's growing in a small area you don't want to go and take a whole bunch of that plant. You don't want to take it by the root. You want it to come back next year. And you know that the bees and the, you know, animals like certain plants, certain mm -hmm. flowers. And that's very, very foremost, not our dye, right? Right. right. So, so being a forage dyer, it's easier for me. Um, you know, lichen, I harvest lichen off the ground, not from the rock or the tree that it's on unless the branch is down it's on firewood and you know after it rains it's very slippery it's a better time to harvest it but there's plenty if you look of windblown lichen once you learn how to look for them and find them you you're not harming anyone or anything by doing mm -hmm. that and with mushrooms now people you know that's a very popular thing foraging mushrooms the mycelium runs for how far yeah and, uh, <laughs> So you're okay to harvest your mushrooms because they're going to shrink back down, go back into the earth, dry out, or if animals get them. But I always leave, always leave something behind. Never take the whole thing. Right. Know? Absolutely. That's one of my, when I do my foraging classes, I always want to tell people like, we're not the only ones utilizing this, this plant or a mushroom in that case. Um, but it is nice, like you said, about the mushroom of that's just the fruiting body is what we see. The the mushroom itself, that's all underground. We're not right reducing the population necessarily yes. uh, of that. But it is always good to be aware of the, I guess, the science involved with the the ecology aspect. Yes. This is how the world interacts with one another. We're a part of it, but so is a lot of other things. Yeah. Okay. So when you think of natural dyeing, there's so many beautiful things online to look at. And there's a lot of wonderful resources. Like you said, we have Instagram, but there's botanical colors. Um, they can provide you with classes and supplies and you can get into that. But my personal goal is to work with what's around me what's in abundance, what presents itself, and to move away and use more of the tannin plants like the walnut. So we're not going to, you're not going to see a big rainbow of colors in my dye house, but you're going to see um, what the season provided and what I haven't worked with yet. I always dye with a plant I never dyed with before each year. And that's oh. how I learn. Right. That's such a cool way to learn, not just about dye, but about your ecosystem where you live as well of you're observing things seasonally you're seeing how this plant grows and then interacts with 
birds or other seed dispersers and then comes back in future years. So that can be such a really great tool to just get you outside observing things. Yes, yes. And you'll find out like some years there's a pass on walnuts. They're not there. Like, um, or, you know, we'll have a better, like uh, you'll find an acorn location, you know, and you know that squirrels eat acorns and that, yeah. you know, animals provide like live off of these things. And you can go somewhere where you find a whole bunch. You never even realized we're there before. You start dying. You're like, this is a really good area to pick. There's enough for everyone yeah. here, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. Do you, so I'm just thinking now that that put me on another path. I know acorn or oak trees have mast years where they are producing an overabundance. Do yep. you, and you, you kind of mentioned that some years the walnuts just don't really produce. Um, so you notice kind of a mast year with, with all nuts. Yep. You get, yes. uh, and I didn't trees. know that before. <laughs> okay. That's yeah. such a cool thing to learn just by observation. Like I took a one of my tree ecology classes taught me that like but just to be able to observe that and say oh I'm seeing these cycles of yes mass production that's cool do you ever work with hickory or other nut trees I have I've well I haven't worked with hickory I've worked with um I'm trying to remember I would inherited from my my friend Nellie did pass away last year um lived a wonderful wonderful life and gave back to everyone she was a home ec teacher but um you know really wanted people to learn from others which is you know a great way to learn mm -hmm. and um she passed on what she had left for me and I was dying with pecan shells pecans and I had no idea first I was thinking oh are these hickory dried out hickory and um, so I just recently died with pecan shells and they're, it's, it's beautiful. That's like um, okay. a different kind, a different shade of brown. Everything has its own time. And, and depending on the time of year that you use the nuts or that year provided on the environmental factors, was it a rainy season? Was it more dry? You're never getting the same color twice. And I love that. I love, yeah. I love not knowing. I love the surprises and I love, I don't want to recreate the same thing every year. Right. Know? Oh, that's really fascinating. So yeah. I have a little, um, I also do herbalism. And so understanding, I got really into it because I have a love of anatomy and biology and medicine. And then I got really excited learning that you can make plant you can make plant medicines and mm -hmm. understanding how plants impact our body systems so then i learned a lot about plant chemistry and how plants will produce different chemicals often they are pigments um, mm -hmm. in order to act as defense mechanisms or deter over herbivory and then when we eat them we get benefits too um, but i guess i just again, as you said, of depending on the time of year, depending mm -hmm. on the environmental factors that can change what color is presented, which then in my head, I'm like, oh, plant chemistry, that's so cool. Uh, did you, I know you said a lot of this is trial and error, but did you ever have to learn a lot about the plant chemistry side of things? Or is this much more of you learn as you go, you're observing uh, patterns over time? I'll 
I was very fortunate. I, I feel fortunate to um, be introduced to the dye world at a time when it was, um, there really wasn't Google. Like you didn't go out and mm -hmm. Google everything and and right. all, all of these wonderful, amazing resources are available as far as in print or online and they should all be accessed. I, I do that. But so mine was these old, you know, older books from my friend Nellie and learning from her. And, you know, I have her um, dye sample book. I, I don't know if I'll ever get through the whole thing, but again, for, for us, it was what was here. Nobody was ordering a dye online. Nobody was ordering a, a dry dye stuff. So I did learn from trial and error. What it was, was an introduction to get out there and observe and to trial and error and learn. But, you know, then I found my dye resource books that I love um, mm -hmm. and I use them a lot. They're like Bibles and creating a notebook to, to keep a record. Now, mm -hmm. my record isn't to say I use this much um, exactly mordant or this much plant, this. Mine is to say whether the plant was successful or not so right. I, I don't go back and spend all the energy water time everything yeah. and trying to recreate if it wasn't really a, a successful plant but um and i i did come out with a forage dye journal last year that was different than dye books because it said where did you harvest the plant what time of year was it what type of year was it what type of pot did you use what type of water did you use because you know i collect rainwater or did i get it from the creek did i get it from the river did i get it from my tap um those are all factors so it's very old-fashioned but right. you can you can get yourself a very good dye book and learn about the plant exactly what flavonoids or what um you know tannins are available right. is it color fast not color fast what you should do to pre-treat the fabric i'm just personally not that kind of dyer um, right yeah okay Interesting. That's so cool. You almost made your own custom field guide. Yes, as far as journaling what you, yeah. um, but it made people think I found when I do do a dye workshop that it helped people remember that, oh yeah, this was late in the season. Mm -hmm. The plant was almost dried up. It wasn't as colorful as when I, you know, may have harvested it at the you know, right in the middle of summer. Um, or I, I, I noticed that this mushroom comes out at this time of year. I always document when I see my mushrooms because I'll be like, yeah. oh, what, are, you know, you don't want to miss your favorite mushroom yeah. to eat or die with. Um, because in different regions and different woods and different darkness, um, though they, they arrive, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I get that question a lot of like, when should I be looking for a morel? And I'm like, well, Tell me a little bit more about your area. How rainy is yes. it? <laughs> Things yeah. like that, because that does all impact it. So that's, oh, that's such a cool way to be able to then document. You're not just thinking about the plant itself. You're thinking about all of the things that impacts the plant's life cycle. And yes. I would have also never thought about the water composition as well. Yes, everybody's water is different. Like here we have right. well water. Um, I get a really lovely color. I use rainwater a lot. If it's raining, I put I throw out all my buckets. I know people have rain barrels. I just don't happen to have one here. And then I do live by the upper Delaware. And once in a while, I'll take a bucket and grab some river water and take it home and see if there's a difference. Because, um, you know, we want to conserve water right. also. 
and learning how to dye where you can conserve water because it does take a lot of water, not just to dye the plant, but especially yarns, rinsing them and um, setting up a system where you're having a low impact on using water also. Yeah, so can you talk a little bit more about the water conservation then that you, ha you, you have to be aware of? Um, again, I, I do believe because I'm a forage dyer and I'm used to that muddy, um, rustic, you know, I've used puddle water before. I've used leaves and decay from puddles. You know, you get a more muted color. It's not, mm -hmm. wasn't brilliant or whatever, but I like to collect rainwater. And, but what I do is after I soak yarns or materials, because they should be wet before you dye them, mm -hmm. So the dye pots goes, I'll use that water as my first rinse then for rinsing things out so that you're not wasting that water. Right. And then, yeah, and then everything gets rinsed through there. And then I, I often use buckets to um, give everything a good soak and a rinse in. Um, so I'm not just running a hose or I'm not just running a sink. Mm -hmm. um, and then once everything's washed and rinsed you know when I go to knit something or weave something I do a final uh, wash after you know you block a sweater or a rug or something that I'll I won't get my yarn ready to the end if I'm personally using it I'll weave the product knit the sweater and then that's another saving on another wash um, there's all different ways to think about it but you get to get savvy with your water I use a baby yes. pool a lot I have a baby pool from one of my great nieces and she's too big for it anymore and I will actually soak things in the baby pool and you know collect water and and um but again I am not looking for those pristine mm -hmm. pinks or pristine um colors I'm looking to work with what I have and low impact all the way yeah with Oh, that's such a great idea. And I I think one of the reasons why at least I started getting really excited about the botanical dye process itself was it did seem a lot more eco-friendly or sustainable as compared to a lot of the synthetic dyes and just trying to be a little more conscientious about sustainable fashion overall and considering, oh, well, how do... Synthetic dyes, as we wash our clothes, they every dye pigment fades over time, right? Like what impact does synthetic dye have on the water that then goes out back into the world? So I think it's really interesting. Just, it, it's one more way to kind of slow down, be conscientious about what we are doing, what we are interacting with over time. Um, so water conservation plays into this. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. So do you do you notice that in doing or working with your botanical dye that it gets you to kind of slow down and live more conscientiously? Definitely. Um, it's it's a beautiful way to live to begin with in the fast paced life. And we hear that slow fashion, slow, you know, living now, um, small batch, mm -hmm. slow color. Um, they're all wonderful things and should be embraced. The thing about dying also is I die outside. I don't choose to, die. I mean, I'll die with onion skins inside or something mm -hmm. that you know is, is good for um, not going to harm you and you need good ventilation but I force myself to to wait like when it's really rainy and rainy and cold I'm collecting the water 
but I don't like to stand out there all that while. So I find myself actually working with the rhythm of the seasons and it's a wonderful way to uh, be present and, yeah. and, and what's going on outside. And, you know, I'm not afraid to go out and walk and harvest in the rain, but you can get pretty damp standing out there for a long time, you know, um, under the canopy of trees, even if it's raining. So I find that part slows me down, waiting for things to bloom. Like right now is a tough time. I'm I'm out of dye stuff from the winter. I used it all. Nothing's in bloom. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go echo print. Well, there's really no leaves right now (laughs) and fresh bloom to use. Um, So, you know, everybody will grab the dandelions and well, for Scythia, I died with last year because I've heard you could die with it. And, uh, I have a lot of forsythia, so that was my first dye. But yeah, working with the seasons, it slows you down. That slow living, and um, so you can die. And if you're a yarn dyer, so you're out there dying all summer, and you're loving it, and then everything's ready for the winter. So it puts you into that knitting season for the fall, and you kind of get ready for the next season. You're like ready. You're like, oh, I could. I feel it's getting colder. The leaves are turning. I can't wait to knit, or I can't wait to weave. So it's very um, rhythmic. That sounds perfect because you you harvest all the stuff, you make the dye, you do your yarn process, and then you're making your blankets and your sweaters for that cold time. And by the time you've finished with all of that, now you can see that the weather's starting to warm up yes. and then you get to start the whole process again. Yes. Which for me, this is also a very rough time of year, even as a, a forager, there's a lot to eat out there. Um, you, you just have to look for it, but it's the sort of thing of, I used up all of my stuff from last year. So I have to regather everything. And over Mm -hmm. the winter, it's a great time to work with your dried product or, um, make all your batches. And so now I find that I'm running out of stuff and Mm -hmm. there's not a ton that is ready yet. Like, oh, I, I'm so ready for the next thing. Um, but you're right, it does it does force me to say, okay, what can I use? Forces me to look a little harder. Um, as well as then say, all right, we're gonna we're gonna let it sit back and we need to be patient. Yes, yes, this is tough. And we get to well, I watch on Instagram or my family and friends who live from Philadelphia or Allentown and uh, we don't even have our uh, daffodils in bloom yet. So when you're showing garlic mustard, you know, or oh, wow. pocket, I'm like, wow, I can't wait. I can't wait. So we're still, yeah. you know, a few weeks behind in oh, the okay. area that I live. And that's really hard. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm like, yeah, watching everyone else do Yes, and I'm like, it's coming, it's coming, but it's not here yet in, in our on our property anyway. I can oh, see no. it's happening, but so it's a it's this is this is the tough time. You're right. <laughs> oh gosh. And it I guess then it would make it even harder if you're uh seeing the fact that I just posted about all the yes. cool stuff that I yes. Oh no. <laughs> but we know it's coming. So it's like, yes. oh, there it is. So yeah. Light <laughs> is in the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yes. Oh gosh. Wow. So when you're, you're working with your plants um, and you're, you're harvesting seasonally, um, do you have a, a goal? I know you said a lot of it is this personal, 
you're making things for yourself, but you do share a lot on Instagram, like I've said, um, and I, I noticed that you were doing some workshops as well. So you're communicating with the public. Um, you're here talking with me about it as well. Do you have a goal for your dye work, um, especially in terms of like how you inform the public about it? Is there a message that you kind of want to get across with your work? I do have a personal goal. I, I don't, you know, I don't, haven't shared that on Instagram. There was a time when I was um, trying to recreate the Navajo dye chart and that was fun, except I don't live in that area. Gotcha. <laughs> so I kind of hit the wall. Actually people, you know, bring me some plants and things and it's fun and it was always an inspiration. So I'm working on creating a regional dye chart that would be specific to here similar not the same type of weaving but to create a color chart a color wheel of the Catskill region where I live and that's my personal goal and that's the influence of the um, Catskill dye cards that I do my friend Fanula okay. is a, an amazing watercolor artist and she that started off as something different but grew into this collection uh, this year we'll be releasing a new card actually in April um We've been doing it for a while and we'll put out a card and on the back, it will have a, a dye recipe for it. So there are no cards, but it's a collection, but right. we plan to expand upon that and build upon that. And I'm going to bring it back in a little and try and go with more native invasive plants are easy to work with. They're here, um, yeah. but we're going to make the chart actually more about um, what would be native to the Catskill region. So it's exciting. It's yeah. quite might sound a little boring or weird to some people, but to us, we're very excited about it. <laughs> yeah, I I often find within the niche groups, I'm like, oh, am I talking too much about this one specific <laughs> thing? But it is very exciting within that community. And I think it, I think it's super cool, um, especially your focus then on the native plants of understanding how the land itself works. You're looking at kind of land use and land management, then kind of all these little facets come into play. And it's really cool how you mentioned the Navajo dye chart. I'm just looking at the historical aspect of these plants as well and how they have been used throughout history. And then when I see stuff like that, I get so excited that there is biodiversity that has been around for a long time. And it still is around, so it kind of gives me hope conservation-wise of like, okay, we can keep these plants alive. We can make this work. And so I think even the note cards, I've seen them on Instagram. They're beautiful. They're okay. so well done. Um, and then, so on top of the aesthetic aspect of it, you have that educational aspect of, look at these cool plants in our area. This is native. Here's how it's used, um, where they grow. That's so cool. And people want to learn, then they can go and give it a try themselves. You know, the, for the dyers, they love it. For the art appreciatives, for the botanical, it was something fun. And um, we really enjoy doing them. They, they do very well too. Okay. Um, and, and deciding every year, okay, what plant do we want to work with? And um, so this year we're going to be releasing the apple bark. Um, so... <laughs> Cool. Yeah, and it's very so easy to die with and people should be pruning or have pruned their apple branches already and can clip them up and um, use them to make a brilliant, brilliant yellow 
um, I've always read that they give peach, but we have wild apple trees here. I don't know how old they are or whatever, but mine give yellow. I'm hoping to gather somewhere else and see if I can get the peach color. So it's the variety of the apple, I believe. Okay. Don't I quote remember, me on it. <laughs> what was it? Two, one or two years ago when you first posted about the apple bark, um, my husband had just done a job on an apple tree and we had some crab apples that were kind of growing weedy like within the in our backyard area so he pruned some for me and I was able to get that peach color <gasps> I don't know really? yes and it was like vibrant peach I was I think that was actually the first my first attempt at botanical dye which then meant that it was so inspirational it was like this little spark moment of oh my gosh look at this crazy color that I was able to get and it was this almost I'm trying to think of yeah it was like a peachy salmon sort of color um oh. more orangey than salmon less pink but still that like really vibrant corally sort of look yes um, yes that's what I'm looking to get good for right. you I have my, all right, I have my little dye journal, which very similarly to how you were mentioning, I just write down when I harvested it, the month. So I have peachy orange early, early May to June is what I have. So I don't know, like you were saying, if the time of year made an impact. Well, we're going to find out oh. if it's the tree or the time of year. There we go. And then I had my shirt, my fabric was cellulose, so cotton. Um, and I pre-mordanated that in alum. Wonderful. And then I let the bark sit in cold water for in five gallon buckets mm -hmm. in early May. And then I did it again in June. And that gave me that peachy orange color. So I don't know. Don't know what exactly about that. Cause like I said, that was my first attempt. So I I bet I was actually going for yellow because yellow is my favorite color. So when oh. you shared that, I probably got super excited that it was yellow well, and then it wasn't, but it was still beautiful. I'm so happy to hear that because I didn't know if, if maybe the author I read from, cause she was from the UK, was it just oh. their soil? Was it because it was there? I mean, I thought 100% I was going to get peach and I got that yellow and the cold water gave the more brilliant yellow then it's okay. great now you're not heating even you know and you can put right. your material right in with the bucket while it ferments um it's a great dye but it's funny you should say uh, you like yellow and I think I posted that not too long ago people say oh you like natural dyeing I hope you like yellow there is so much yellow out there and you know goldenrod it's gold you know and then you have Queen Anne's lace she's very a queen it's a lighter delicate yellow like right. it's funny I find that the plant name some sometimes unintentionally or intentionally um, associates with the color it produces that's cool oh that and like you said that is one of the things that I think I got so excited when I saw how much yellow there was um it is everywhere and a lot of the yellows I find at least from my limited experience they didn't need a lot of mordants to go along with it that's just the color that was produced 
um, which I always appreciated the ease then of saying, cool, it's water, it's plant, it's shirt, there we go. Yes. Um, which was always then really fun. And it allowed me to introduce kids to it through like little tiny botanical dye workshops where we only have this much time to work with the kids. And I know a lot of dye baths can take days to weeks to produce. Yeah. And so it's cool that there's a way to kind of get kids involved, get them excited about it. And yeah. That's you know, um, you'll want to try barberry because Bar you don't- Oh, we have that everywhere. It's invasive. Right. It's okay. invasive and you don't need a mordant. And when you, break off barberry which I'm sure you're familiar you see that beautiful chartreuse yellow in there right. that beautiful beautiful color um that's a lovely dye and it's so invasive so and you it don't is. need yeah oh that's so great to know because I always love um when I talk about invasive species let's talk about how we remove them but then what do we do with all that removed plant matter that we shouldn't be necessarily composting because then we're just replanting the seeds you know or spreading the seeds around so being able to utilize the invasive species in that way is so cool yes so I have now added barberry and black walnut bark and leaves to my list this year yes okay cool that is very exciting so you, I've, you have obviously inspired me a whole bunch, um, but if you were thinking about how you would suggest that people can engage with the natural world through botanical dye, what would you suggest that they would start with? Um, well, first of all, because the, the internet is so, so readily available, um, I would tell people to head over to botanical colors um, because they actually have resources, but they also have class like online tutorials. Um, on Instagram, I would follow the Dogwood Dyer or the Barefoot Dyer. Um, oh, yeah, I call her. Okay. Yes, or Cara Piazza. Um, she's now working with botanical dyes. They have wonderful workshops like on ice dyeing or, you know, different types, bundle dyeing. There's so much information out there. I still like the hardcover books. I love mm -hmm. them. I find them wonderful to work with. But if I was going to tell anybody, and I always tell them, that's why we added the onion to the Catskill dye chart is your onion skins. You don't need a mordant with those. They're right in your kitchen. Save them. If you mm -hmm. want to separate your red, um, red onion from your yellow onion or brown onion, as some people call it, um, you can get a great color mixed together. You can get a great color separately. You can actually get a green from the red onion skins. Um, you're going to get a color. You're going to hold on to that color. Anything dyed naturally does fade some more than others. Some are color fast, some aren't. Just don't store things in the direct sunlight, you know, mm -hmm. take care of them. Um, and you can have a color for a long time and you can always over dye too. Right. But I would start with onion skins. If I was the fir first journey into natural dye, because you're going to get a success. You want people to be successful. Right. So, and it's okay. readily available for low cost. Um, yes. So that would be a great place to start. Oh, that, that's such a great suggestion. Um, I do I know, want to for me, I have onions a lot that I cook with and I always store the skins and you can, at least when I go to Giant and I'll buy the onions, 
all the skin flakes off. So I'll just shove all the onion yes. skin in my little bag at the same time. So it yes. is great, easily accessible. Yes. And, um, and you know, fun. a lot of people want to die with children. So that's a, a safe, mm -hmm. a safe thing to die with. We always want to tell people too, you know, there's the dye tips. Don't ever use your dye pots and your cooking utensils. Right. You should have your dye kitchen utensils. And it's great. Your old pots, your old utensils, they can go right into your dye kitchen. You're yeah. not throwing those out either. You yeah. know, or, or if you're at a flea market or something, you see a nice cast iron pot, you want to add that to your dye collection. Cast iron gives a, you know, can make your brown walnut color a dark, dark chocolate brown because of the color, the cast iron from the pot. Yes. But I do want to give Jenny Dean a shout out. Um, that's the first book that I worked with, Jenny Dean's Wild Color. She just updated it. And that's a great resource for people as a starting dye book. If you're looking for one, I would okay. highly recommend it. That is great. And all of the, the Instagram link um, handles that you mentioned, the, the book that you just mentioned, I will have them as links in the podcast description for people. Good. So all of that information is going to be readily accessible as well. So that is fantastic. Um, yeah, so aside from that book, do you have anything else that you would like to plug um, any of your own work or other, other resources that you have just because they are so great? Well, you know, one thing you want to talk, talk about a little bit that I didn't talk about mm -hmm. is, you know, when we say slow color or harvesting, we also want, you know, that whole repurposing like your wardrobes or this right. or that is, is using... I can't see it up as like joining a local guild or working with local fibers or local fiber mills or before you toss something, maybe repurposing right. it or using it as a sample cloth to practice dyeing with, use a t-shirt as a practice cloth to do echo printing with, um, taking a look at everything before we um, just discard of it, you know, and there's right. a lot of information out there. There's fiber sheds growing across the country where people are keeping things local. but. Um, as far as other books, I like Rebecca Burgess's Harvesting Color. And we also have The Modern Natural Dyer by Christine Bayar. I think that's how you say her name. Um, she has a wonderful book out. I think she's writing another one also. Um, but there's wonderful resources out there and you'll find yourself picking up more as you go along. Um, yeah it's nice to have a book to look at the colors right in your hand. Um, and I, I'm available. I have a website. It's fishercatfibercompany.com. And it, of course, my Instagram is fishercatfibercompany. But anybody can reach out to me with a message or a question. I'm always happy to answer. I can attest to that. When I was first starting, I reached out <laughs> almost every post I was so excited about. And you were so helpful. I'm so happy we got to connect. Yes, I am too. Again, Instagram has been really great for that. As many people who have been listening to this podcast, that's where most of my guests have come from. It's beyond just my personal little circle of my own friends who are in the science or nature field. Like Instagram has been so helpful to connect. It has. It's connected us, a lot of us together and like minds and thoughts and very inspirational. Yes. I, I love it. So for what it's earth, each person who is able to connect with the natural world, get outside this spring, this summer, this fall, this winter, anytime that you are able to get out there, 
and explore the plants that are in your area. See if you can find any of those little guilds or the fiber sheds that Annie had mentioned. You will be making a little impact on your local ecosystems as well as your own passions for the natural world. So with that, thank you so much for digging deeper into the natural world with the Art of Ecology and with Annie of Fisher Cat Fiber. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please support, review, and continue to follow along to explore more of the wonderful ecosystems that we are a part of. And with that, I'll see you next time on For What It's Earth.